was highly prophetic. That was the insertion of the Lord, an invasion of God into um, our corporate gathering. And we're really open to the wind of the Lord. Whichever way it blows, that's the way we go. Amen. So we're not slaves to notes. While I do prepare thoroughly, and um, um, if you want to access any additional materials, they're all free on my website. All this material that I've said, it's in two formats, in document form and in audio form. It's randolphbarnwell.com. So just feel free to download whatever you need there. Freely we have received, so freely we give. Amen. The purposes of God need structure. Purposes of God need format. God is not arbitrary in how he does things. He is a God of extreme order and extreme protocol. The father-son dynamic is one of those structures that he has put in place for his purposes to, to be efficiently expressed in the earth. Not just any father-son structure. Because you can have father-son dynamics in the completely wrong order. Not because you use the terms father-son doesn't mean it's legitimate. Because you can be fathered by the wrong spirit. Not everyone that calls themselves apostolic is authentically apostolic. Because there are false apostles that have to be discerned. There's also unholy apostles. The Bible says that, I think it's Ephesians 3 verse 5 or thereabouts, it says he's revealed mysteries to his holy apostles and prophets. So if they are holy ones, there must be some unholy ones. Right? If they are true apostles, the church at, at, Laodo, at if Ephesus, for example, which was the first church, the first letter was addressed to Ephesus, a first of seven you know, Philadelphia, Sardius, etc. But Ephesus was the first. So they always, there's something wonderful about Ephesus and Ephesians as a case study that I believe we ought to really study. Because Paul's engagements with Ephesus, the Ephesian church, even John's letter at the latter years to that church will reveal God's intent for the city and for their first place amongst the others. That church, it says, had the capacity to discern false apostles. It says, you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but have found them to be false. So it's not, it's, it takes great discernment not to be connected to that which is false, but you have to ensure that you have to connect to that which is true um, in Christ. So it's very important to be connected to a valid and an authentic apostolic grace. The Bible says, and uh, Gordon read it this morning, in Hebrews 7, by faith, Moses left Egypt. Then the next verse says, by faith, he kept the, fast, the pass over. Next verse says, by faith, they crossed the Red Sea. By faith, he forsook Egypt. By faith, he kept the pass over. Then it gets plural, by faith they. What one man does has an effect on a whole company. By faith he, by faith he, by faith they. 
Sometimes when a leader does not act correctly, he limits his entire group that is meant to impact. Right? But when Moses acts in faith, by faith he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There was even father and son in Egypt. But Moses refused sonship to an inaccurate order. There's, there's, there's a level of fathering that you have to disconnect from, and you have to be, you have to refuse it. You cannot be fathered by a pharaoh. Some churches are led by pharaohic pastors that keep God's people in slaves. God is saying to pharaohs in Cape Town, let my people go, that they might come into sonship. What did God, in Exodus 4, is it was 22 or 23? Just put that up on the screen, Exodus 4. I think it's verse 22 or thereabouts. God was extracting something from Egypt. You will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Right? Next verse, verse 23. So I say to you, let my son go that he might serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. What God was saying to Pharaoh is, you are enslaving sonship. What you got captive there is sonship. So I want you to let son go. Not just any son, people that come into firstborn sonship identity. All the drama in Egypt. It was very dramatic how they were let out, not so? The exodus, God's dealings with them by ten dramatic plagues. All of the associated drama was for one purpose. God wants a son. He wants to extract a son out of a system that keeps it enslaved. Many pastors keep their people infants and refuse to mature their people into sonship because you want to keep your people dependent upon you. Slaves building your empire, your pyramids, and not God's purposes. God is saying to the churches in Cape Town, to all Pharaohic pastors, and when I speak to you, I speak not just to you, but we are sounding a signal to the realm of the Spirit. God is saying to Pharaohs in the southwestern Cape, let my son go. Right? Let my people that you're keeping subservient in slavery to your purposes, let them go that they might serve me and my purposes even in the wilderness. So Moses refused sonship from an inaccurate order. The Bible says he did not fear the wrath of the king. And whenever you disconnect from something inaccurate, you're going to do so fearlessly. If fear governs you, fear will cripple you. Fear will, will keep you enslaved to a system that God's about to judge. Let me say another prophecy here. I'm picking up something in the spirit. You cannot be fathered by a system that God's about to judge. God was about to judge Egypt. So Moses disconnected from, from an order that was inaccurate, that was awaiting the judgment of God. That thing cannot father you. You know, the, 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 the modern church is plagued with error, plagued with inaccuracies. And if you want to serve a system that's inaccurate and be fathered by it and opt for not pleasing God by coming out of it, then while you stay, 
suffer too the judgment of God on the system. But to, to escape the judgment, you have to come out of the system. Even, it says, by faith, Joseph gave orders concerning his bones. Joseph wasn't even satisfied that his bones stay in an inaccurate system. How about you? You are alive. Here's a, he said, he even had prophetic, he said, one day we are out of here. Because the Bible says, you know what Joseph said? God raised him as a father to Pharaoh. Not so? So as long as the Pharaoh is fathered, Egypt, the land, serves God's purposes and protects God's people. When that Pharaoh died, the Bible says, and another Pharaoh came up that did not know Joseph. Did not know Joseph, we could paraphrase, did not know fathering. Because Joseph, he says, well, I was a father to Pharaoh. So when the, when the leader is not fathered, the context he leads serves to, 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 to go against God's purposes than to facilitate them. Okay? So I want to encourage you, it's important to be fathered by the, the right order. Amen. Okay, let me get back to my notes because we're going on another tangent now. Of importance to me is that the father-son wineskin, once you're accurately placed in it, serves God's purpose. The relationship between you and your spiritual father at whatever level you analyze this, whether you're an ordinary member in a local church relating to your elder, senior elder as a spiritual father, or whether you as a leader are relating to someone over you to, and connected to some valid apostolic source as a fathering grace, at whatever level it is, so long as you're connected to, like I said in the first session, authentic apostolic grace, at whatever level you are placed, the relationship must serve an end. There must, it's a means to something greater. What I've seen um, right now is a lot of father-son relationships are so inward-looking and self-absorbing that they don't serve any purpose beyond the relationship. Now, let me just say this. A father will disseminate grace via doctrine to you, and that will mature you in the nature and the ways of Christ. But that too, your maturity by your father as a son is for a higher purpose. Now, the purposes of God are given to fathers to steward. Fathers have the mandate to ensure stewardship that God's purposes in the earth are efficiently carried out. In the Godhead, you have equality. But in the Godhead, you have ranking. And ranking does not negate equality. Ranking is for functional effectiveness. While being equal, you can be ranked lesser than the one over you while being equal to him, but subservient to him to accomplish purpose. Ranking is not, um, or rather equality in, in whatever, in the Godhead, in marriage, Husband is equal to wife, but in functionality, husband is head of wife to accomplish the efficient administration of the relationship so that it represents something more than the relationship, which is Christ and his church. So if you don't understand the purpose for the thing and the ranking in the thing, you negate expressing the intent of God for it. So when I encourage people to marry... You marry 
because you want to enlist to represent God at another level. There will be chemistry. You will feel something for the other person. There'll be emotion, there'll be drawing, there'll be all the, the associated love, love principles in a typical romantic story. But when we get married, if you opt to get married for pure romance, you've missed the whole point of marriage. The point of marriage is to represent Christ and His church, because that is what Paul taught. So if you don't have the representation in mind, then you as a wife will fail in submission to your husband in the Lord, because you fail to model what the obedience there too is meant to represent of how the church should submit to Christ. If you as a husband don't understand how Christ loves his church, you will never be able to love your wife adequately. Because a husband must love his Christ. A husband must love his wife. <laughs> Please, wives, edit that. Delete. <laughs> I know what the wives are going to say now. Yes, I'm the Christ. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. If you don't understand how Christ loves the church, you will never love your wife to the acceptable degree as you ought to biblically. Every husband must study how Christ loves his church to adequately love his wife. I feel sorry for the guy that comes home for my daughter. She's only 12 years old now. First question I'm going to ask him, can I see your bank account? Six months bank statement, bro. Let's see. Before we even talk anything. I'm not, I'm not concerned about how much you earn. I'm concerned about, is there an indication in your financial management that you honor God? Because if you cannot honor God financially, and I'm going to submit my daughter to your oversight, and you're going to take care of her, no, no, it's not going to work. I want to see that you are tithing, first fruiting, and giving offerings. Yeah? <laughs> Next question is, young man, do you understand how Christ loves the church? Because if you don't, you're not, not going to love my girl adequately. If he says no, I said, well, put this decision off for the next year. Come see me every week and I'll educate you how Christ loves his church. <laughs> so one day when I give him my permission to marry my daughter, I'm at peace. He, you will love her as Christ loves the church. Amen. That's good advice for some of you fathers. You know, I'm, I'm actually, I walk in trepidation for that moment. I had three boys and one girl. The boys are easy. But the girl, another story. <laughs> Amen. Everyone say divine purpose. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10 is one of my favorite portions because the Paul Timothy model of father-son is one of the most biblically accurate. In the Old Covenant, it would be Elijah, Elisha, or Moses, Joshua, or Mordecai and Esther, or Naomi and Ruth. Everywhere you look in the Bible, Anything significant in terms of purpose that God wanted to do in the earth, he did via a relationship. You'll track this throughout Old and New Covenants. No purpose is done outside of that structure. 
that affects God's dealings with the earth corporately or, or globally. Okay? So, Isaac needs Abraham. Jacob needs Isaac. Joseph needs Jacob. Joshua needs Moses. Esther needs Mordecai. Ruth needs Naomi. Elisha needs Elijah. In the New Covenant, Timothy needed Paul. Titus needed Paul. John Mark needed Peter. Everybody needs somebody. Tell, tell your neighbor, everybody needed somebody. But the connection to the Father that God placed over you had to be apostolically connected for the significance of the purpose attendant with that relationship. If the relationship was purely inward-looking and romantic, it served each other and not God's purposes. And right now, the father-son wineskin has been upgraded now to move beyond romanticism. Yes, we do love each other. A father loves a son. A son loves a father. Love Loyalty, faithfulness, commitment, devotion, all of those things are necessary and must be in place, but for a higher purpose, right? And that's to serve the purposes of God in the earth today, amen? Ruth is covenantally joined to Naomi, and in the book of Ruth 4, verse 15, Ruth is defined as better than seven sons, that automatically casts Ruth into the role of spiritual son and Naomi as spiritual father. It's not a narrative about a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. We look at that from the New Testament perspective. We look back to that story parabolically or symbolically, although it's an historical account, but we look at it and we interpret it with spiritual lenses. Right? So the moment I read that, Ruth 4.15, where Ruth is described as better than seven sons. Seven is perfection. This girl goes beyond perfection. He's better. In a sonship disposition in reference to, in reference to Naomi would then would be viewed as her father in, in Christ. And remember what you said in Ruth chapter 2, where you, or Ruth chapter 1, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. That's an intense covenantal commitment. But you see, Ruth loved Naomi, and Naomi loved Ruth. And there was a whole lot of instruction that Naomi would give Ruth throughout the narrative. But who does Ruth marry? Boaz. Boaz in the narrative is a representation of Christ. Ruth is not meeting Boaz without Naomi. The instructions of a father to a son is to lead the son in intimacy to Christ. The father is not the focus, Christ is. It's not the relationship between Naomi and Ruth that birthed Obed, the child. It was the relationship between Ruth and Boaz that gave birth to Obed, who became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David, from whom the Christ would be born. Christ is born right at the end. But you back it up, this narrative in a little domestic setting, between a father and son, 
commitment, faithfulness, love, but with the ultimate aim of producing something in the earth that changes the course of human history forever. Now that is what I want. I don't want it to be, I, I relate to Pastor Thamonaido as my fatherly apostolic oversight. I love him, I know he loves me, right? It's very faithful, there's loyalty, there's covenantal commitment. But now I'm asking God, why did you establish this? What aspects of your purpose are attendant with us? Who has got the prophetic sight to see years from now what this relationship is meant to birth in the earth? If you don't have your eye on the purpose, you will abuse the present relationship. But if purpose is your priority, you will govern yourself with sobriety, with discipline, with obedience in the present relationship, because in your heart you hold dear to what it's intended to accomplish. Okay? So in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, I will just use one or two case studies. Right? I have about a, almost a 100-page manual here in front of me with various case studies. But for me, the Timothy Paul model aptly captures this truth. And Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10, NASB, New American Standard says, Now you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, verse 11, persecutions, sufferings, as has happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out, out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Go back to verse 10. Paul lists seven or eight things that Paul, that Timothy followed. Sons follow fathers. Elisha followed Elijah. The following must be close. You track your spiritual father. Watch him. You track him by following his, first his teaching. Everyone say teaching. What's the first priority? Doctrine. Doctrine is the preeminent thing governing the relationship. The teaching is, not so. Then he says second to doctrine was his conduct. In other words, make sure that his conduct is reflective of his doctrine. There mustn't be disconnect between what your apostle teaches to how the apostle behaves. Paul was so confident, my son Timothy, you just not follow what I taught, but you followed in me what you saw I taught manifest in my behavior. Right? Uh, Hebrews, don't keep this up, but Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, remember those who led you, who spoke to you the word of God, whose faith follow. You see, they speak to you word, but faith is a model of behavior that you follow. Paul said to Timothy, you followed my, I call it TCP. Who remembers TCP, the medicine? <laughs> my parents used to give me when I was growing up, TCP. I think it was for stomach cramps. It still is, eh? the, the use hasn't changed. <laughs> I remember I used to hate the thing, like a funny taste. But it was meant for your good. Everyone say TCP. That's how I remember this verse. Teaching, conduct, purpose. What did Paul follow? What did Timothy follow in Paul? His TCP. His teaching, his conduct, and his, his purpose. In that order. 
you will never get to the apostle's purpose if you first don't embrace his teaching. Once you follow his teaching and you see it modeled in his behavior, are you then eligible now to pursue purpose? The issue of allowing purpose, the purpose of God governing the relationship to be, to be accomplished demands that the son in the relationship first and foremost imbibes the teaching of the apostle to whom he is called. Now, this is where I'm at. The father-son diet must migrate to accomplishing the purposes of God. I love my father in Christ, as we all do. Some of his sons are here. Great man in the Lord, and we respect him and hold him in the highest of honor. But I cannot just be romantic. I'm going to ask, why did you put me here in relationship with him? I must say, I'll follow your doctrine. I'll embrace your conduct. But two... What Paul says concerning Timothy, you, my son, were thoroughly convinced of my purpose, and you, my son, have followed my purpose. And he would mention other things later, like love, patience, perseverance, and sufferings, that the son is meant to follow the father in all of those respects. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul says the following about Timothy. I'm going to run through a bunch of scriptures to illustrate a few points. I'm going to go fast, so please put your seatbelts on. Just because of time, um, which is always my greatest enemy. For this reason, he says, 1 Corinthians 4.17, For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy. Paul is sending Timothy to the city of Corinth. Paul, for some reason, could not go at that stage. So in his place, he sends a son that could accurately represent him. And he describes Timothy in the following way. He is my beloved and a faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of what? He will remind you of my ways. The word ways is hodos. In other words, my movements or my behavioral patterns are accurately represented in my son, Timothy. I can't come, so I send him. But in sending him, it's just like me coming. Because when you see Timothy, you will see me. What did Jesus say if, when they asked, show us the Father? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. So what is true of the divine relationship between God and his divine son, Jesus, is true of all spiritual father-son relationships. The son must accurately represent the the Father, okay? In fact, in representation, you have to die unto yourself. This is my main point today. Tell someone, today you're going to (laughs) die. I'm going to kill you today. There'll be nothing left in you, right? In other words, to, to represent anything accurately, you have to live in the culture of death unto self. When, 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 when an ambassador is sent to a foreign nation, let's say, and he's asked to make a public statement on national TV in the foreign nation concerning views about his own country relative, let's say, to something. That ambassador is not authorized to give his personal opinion. He has to represent his country completely, even though personally he might have a different view on a matter. Any representative to fully represent the one's that sent him must die unto himself completely to fully represent the sender. 
A son must die to fully represent a father, specifically in the matter of fulfilling the purposes for which God has prescribed for that relationship. So he says, he's my faithful child. He will remind you of my ways. And it's not idolizing Paul because Paul qualifies it. He says, my ways which are in Christ. Remember in another place he said, follow me as I follow Christ. So Paul himself is fixated on representing Christ. So who ultimately is going to be seen? Christ. Not Paul. Christ. Everyone is modeling another. Right? Christ is always the Christ is always the, the focus. Christ is always the be-all and the end-all of things. So, to be sent, you have to represent the intentions and the nature of your Father to the regions to which you are sent. I won't go through, but there's a whole bunch of scriptures where Paul had the need to remind Timothy. He said, speak no other thing. Teach no other thing than, than the things which you have heard from me. Okay? Timothy had to die to his own doctrine and replicate the doctrine taught by him through an authentic apostolic source vested within his, within his father. Okay? And I really want to encourage you. You know, I think my role as a teacher is one of the easiest in fivefold. <laughs> you know why? I keep my ear close to what apostles and prophets are saying. That's all I do, right? They make my life so easy. I listen to my father carefully. I listen to people like Prophet Sean Bluchnote carefully. What is, and as a teacher, I just take mysteries because they have apostles and prophets have got the capacity to decode mysteries. Of the fivefold, those two publicly are authorized to break seals, to decode mysteries. I, the Bible says he said some in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. I will just come to hear what they're saying and to anchor and consolidate the truth of what is being revealed. Find how it's expressed publicly and make it, make it understandable in the lives of ordinary saints. Because that's what teachers do. They take the mystery decoded by apostles and prophets and make it plain. So that the ordinary brew right at the back of the church in the last row there, that brew, when he walks out, he can do the work. Amen? That's the job of a, of, of, of a, of a, of a teacher. Now in, first, in Philippians, quickly, I'm going to go very fast. Philippians 2 verse 19. This is what Paul said concerning Timothy. I hope in the Lord, Philippians 2.19, to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. Paul was so convinced that when he sends Timothy, listen carefully, here's what I want to get at. Timothy has got no selfish ambition. Timothy got no plans for self-aggrandizement. Timothy got no plans to make himself famous. Timothy got no plans to do his own thing in his sending. Paul is convinced when I send him, I have no one like him who is of kindred spirit. King James says, who was of equal soul to me. 
Got the same thinking. He thinks like me, feels like me, acts like me, makes decisions like me. I send him because he has the same spirit, the same soul as me. Remember when Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon for them to reconcile. He said this at one stage to Onesimus, to Philemon. Philemon received him because in me sending Onesimus back to you, I am sending my very own heart. I'm sending the man, but in the man is my heart. You never send someone that doesn't represent your heart. Right? If the heart's not in the son, don't send the son. Right? And so Paul had the need to caution Philemon, when you receive this once unprofitable servant that's now profitable, don't deal with him as a servant, but see my heart in him. You know? Paul had the same thing with Timothy. He's got no ambition. He's got no self-interest. He serves a higher purpose. And let's continue the verse. They all seek their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. You know his proven worth, and yes, I'm getting it. Listen to this portion. He served with me. Everyone say with me. With me. Say it louder. With me. So Timothy served with Paul. And then he clarifies that. He says, in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. There's two phrases here. He served with me, and he says he served me, like a child serving his father. So he served me. So he served with me, and he served me. In other words, the principle is when you serve your father, you are really serving with him. You are simply ranked below him for functionality, but from heaven's perspective, you are right there with him. But it will test your pride to come under. You will have to be humble to submit yourself to the one placed over you. But in heaven's eyes, you are with. You will never be with someone until you learn to serve under them. Humility and servitude is a prerequisite requirement in this season. And I'm saying, if you perceive an accurate spiritual apostolic father... Submit. Come under. Someone explained the word submission to me. I think it's a well-known illustration. It's made up of two phrases, sub and mission. Submission, sub and mission. Mission denotes assignment or some special purpose. Sub means come under. Submission is coming under the assignment of another. You've got no intention or purpose of your own, but you seek to facilitate the will of God given to another to steward. So you've got no self-interest, but you are focused on accomplishing the will, in this context, of your spiritual father to whom is given the purpose. A son must die to self-ambition. A son must die to self-interest. In fact, Timothy is as graced as he is. Because he starts to migrate from the romanticism in his relationship to Paul to the place where he's going to accomplish purpose with Paul. Now, the moment you step out from lovey dovey, guga, hallelujah, <laughs> hmm? we love each other, loyalty, inward looking, yeah, all in place. The moment that's in place, you say, now let's do purpose. 
Grace is present there in the romantic phase of the relationship. But it's got no comparison to the quality of grace that is then released when the son now seeks to explore purpose that was given to his father. Then unusual grace, and I'll show it to you in a moment, unusual grace now starts to attend the son because the son has now lived in the culture of death to self in deference for the purposes of the Lord to be accomplished in and through the relationship uh, given to him by the father. Do you know Jehoiada in Second Chronicles 23? Jehoiada was a priest who preserved the life of the young king Joash, the next king of Judah. Remember? You know the story, right? You read your Bibles here in Cape Town? <laughs> who was it? Athalia, who was the daughter of Jezebel. You thought Jezebel was bad. The next offspring... Athalia was 10 times worse. And she sought to kill all the royal seed from the house of Judah. Ambition and pride took over. And she started the process. And this, this priest, Jehoiada, sought to protect the legitimate heir to the throne, which was a young boy, and he hid him. And what he did, he empowered himself. The Bible says he strengthened himself and he strengthened the second tier leaders, all the heads of households throughout Judah. And he educated them concerning the will of the Lord as to who should be the rightful owner, the rightful king. The Bible says that he orchestrated the death of Athaliah, preserving the king, supported the king. He gave the king a copy of the testimony and the law of God. He was not the king. But he was second to the king because he, he realized purpose lies with you, young boy. I will use my power to protect you and to serve, to preserve the purpose of God in, in you. So he would, he would be called what we call the second man. Right? And you know what? He occupied that position for life. Don't use second man placement with promotion in mind to first man. Don't fulfill faithfulness there with ambition on your heart that I'm going up, I'm climbing up the ranks. Yeah? This man served Jehoiada for all his life until the day of his, of his death when he was a grown man, King Joash, and the kingdom well established. And you know what? When the man died, God said, bury him with the king's. He's not the king, but in heaven's eyes, he's with the king. He's serving the king. It's like Timothy serving Paul under but with Paul. Okay? And let me just say this. You know what his name means? God knows. <laughs> Sometimes when nobody recognizes you, there's a God in heaven that knows the kind of support, the kind of faithfulness you exhibit to one over you. And you're quite content to stay there. What is the ultimate thing at the back of your mind? So long as the purposes of God are accomplished, I don't mind where I'm placed. If God put me there to support another, I do it. So I don't, so long as at the forefront of my thinking, the purposes of the Lord run swiftly. Okay? The purposes of the Lord are fully, fully accomplished. Now, I want to demonstrate this from the life of Moses. Because I think 
the life of Moses aptly captures something that we fail to see. In Exodus 3 and verse 6, watch this. Let me ask you this. If God asked you, where would you like to be in biblical history? Which one of you would like to be Moses? <laughs> Anybody? Any takers? <laughs> Who wants to lead 600,000 people out of Egypt? They would eventually become 2 million plus. And they're not the easiest bunch to lead. They are stiff-necked, rebellious. Right? And Moses, I, I take my hat off to that man. He's a great man in the old covenant, right? Great leader. This is how God introduces his mandate. Watch verse 6 of Exodus 3. He said, I am the God of your... Check how God starts. I have an assignment for you. But I come to you as a God of a father before you. You're the son in the process, down the line. So I introduce myself to you. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of... Isaac and the God of Jacob, then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God is not coming to God, or rather God is not coming to Moses arbitrarily, without context. God is saying, if you're going to understand your assignment, Moses, I have to introduce myself to you as the God who fathered people before you. So I am the God of your father, Abraham, your father Isaac, your father Jacob. Verse 10. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh that you might bring my people out, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But notice, before I send you, understand your heritage. Understand your legacy. Understand what I've said to fathers before you if you are going to make sense of your present assignment. What I have for you, Moses, is not divorced from what I've done in the past. What, in fact, what I have for you, Moses, is not divorced from prophetic words I've given to fathers be before you. Now, if you look in Psalm 105, quickly, verse 9 and 10, watch this. Verse 9 says, the covenant which he made with Abram and his oath to Isaac, Notice, who's Abram and Isaac? Forefathers. <clears throat> forefathers. Verse 10, he confirmed it to Jacob. So there's reference to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And so that's how the psalm unfolds. If you drop down to verse 26, it says, He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. And Moses and Aaron, in verse 27, they performed wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. So Moses and Aaron are performing wondrous acts. But how does God preface it? God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Drop down to verse 37. Did Moses do extraordinary miracles in his day? He did not so. Look at some of the record. Verse 37, he brought them out with the silver and gold, and among his tribes, that's God, your reference here, there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to illumine by night. They asked, and he gave quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. 
He opened the rock and the water flowed out. Not so? Remember when Moses struck the rock the first time? Boom! Miraculous. Is, is Moses a powerful man? Yes or no? Come on, talk to me. Moses is the man of power for the hour. This guy is doing extraordinarily great stuff. Not so? Greatly anointed, greatly graced. And verse 42 tells you why. He remembered his holy word to who? Who's Abraham? A father. So you tell me, Moses, you are disgraced, disanointed? Not because of you. It's not because of you, Moses. God is simply fleshing out a promise given to Abraham. And you are a role player down the line. And if you can't link your present activity as a performance of what God said prophetically to fathers, you are not going to be as anointed and as graced unless you learn to link present activity to, as a fulfillment to words spoken prophetically to fathers. If you're taking notes, it's Genesis 15, where God said to Abraham, the nation formed to you will be incarcerated for 400 years. But after 400 years, with a mighty hand, I will bring them out. That word was said to who? To Abram. God remembered that word to Abram and called Moses to take them out. So the activity of a son Moses down the line was in direct fulfillment to a prophecy given to a forefather. Every son must ensure his activities are legitimate by linking what he is doing to prophecies and promises built in fathers. So I have no will of my own. I don't seek a will of my own. My personal assignment in God finds relevance when it is the expression of the purposes of God stewarded by my Father in Christ. And in that economy, the grace of God will flow most efficaciously and most efficiently when that is the case. You know, I travel extensively presently the last year or so. Why? Because of a mandate my father has. I don't travel because of things unique to Randolph. My present outworking is simply because of a mandate my father carries in Christ. And if I learn to marry my present activity to the promise of God vested in a father, guess what? When I do what I do, I find grace allotment and grace empowerments, blessing what I do, because what I do is not independent of what God said to a father. Most sons uh, don't learn this, and it completely is, escapes them. When I plug into the will of God vested in a father, I get unusually grace-empowered. And I find that there's an efficiency and a, a, a flow, if you would, an anointing, a grace, a gifting that I will never be able to experience if I don't marry my present activity with the purpose of God vested within a father. And now I want to encourage you to find that principle and express it within your own personal life. Now, I think biblically it's most powerfully illustrated Yes, in Moses and in Abraham, but in David and his 30. You know David had 30 mighty men? 
David had um, an elite force. They called the 30, although there were 37 of them listed in 2 Samuel 23, but often in the Bible, they always called the 30. David had men, and then David had the 30. And these 30 model this principle so powerfully. David is the um, apostolic father, if you would. He's the apostolic oversight. When Saul died, there was a defection away from the house of Saul to the house of David, even while Saul was alive. But even after Saul's death, there was a slow exodus out from the Saul era into the Davidic era. And David received some men um, while Saul was alive, specifically in his fugitive years, in running, and initially at Adullam. Remember Adullam? 400 men that were lived in D section, <laughs> depressed, in debt, and distressed. That was David's first church. Would like a church like that, 400 strong, everyone's in debt, everyone's depressed, and everyone's in distress. <laughs> David's first church, right? And listen carefully. They, they connected with David even before David was recognized legitimately as king in the natural. These men saw something prophetically that was about to be enacted. They saw the favor of God resting on one king and the favor of God leave another. And so there was a defection away from inaccuracy to, to accuracy. They came in debt. They came in depression. They came in distress. But by the time you read... David's final coronation, David had three anointings. At his final anointing or coronation as king at Hebron, these men are described as mighty men of valor. Of the 430 arose to this position of such an enrichment and transformation. Listen, I always say David had men, but then he had mighty men. He had followers and supporters, but then he had this elite group of highly trained, skilled personnel that gave him some of the greatest support, like Timothy supported Paul, like Elisha supported Elijah, like Moses supported, uh, or Joshua supported Moses, like Aaron and her supported Moses. These 30 gave David some of the greatest support. Now, I want to, in the, in the remaining 20 minutes to look at this case study and illustrate the point. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter five, listen carefully. 2 Samuel chapter five, there is proof that these men knew David's past and they knew David's future. In 2 Samuel five, listen carefully, verse one it says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and in. So they knew his past. The Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people, Israel. So they knew his future. They knew David's past and they knew David's future. They had an understanding and they were convinced you are authorized to lead as king because the Lord said to you. Notice they were fully aware of what purpose attended David. Every son must understand the purpose of his father. These men were fully, no one could tell them otherwise that David is not legitimate. They knew David is the legal legitimate king and they knew the prophecy attendant with him. 
God, they remind David of a prophecy. How is that? Most leaders are reminding their people what God said to them. How is this when leaders remind you what God said to you? <laughs> they say to David, the Lord God said to you, you're going to shepherd my people, Israel. Anyone you lead must be convinced that you are legitimate. If the people you, need, you lead are not convinced as to your legitimacy, you will always have problems in them supporting and buying into the purpose attendant with you. These men didn't need a seminar or a special meeting as to God did call me. There was conviction, a prophetic awareness in their hearts that the Lord did call him. And I speak to someone here prophetically, if there's an iota of doubt in you, that the person leading you is not legitimately authorized to do, then you need to reconsider. You have to be convinced to, to, to give the kind of support that you're biblically required to do. And then in First Chronicles 11, look at the kind of support that these men gave David. It says, First Chronicles 11.10, they helped David, right? So these are the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord. Repeat after me, according to the word of the Lord. These men are always governed by what God said, by according to the, the word of the Lord. They come to give strong support. Everyone say strong support. Now, there is support and there is strong support. David's men give him support, but the 30 give him strong support, right? So in supporting David, listen carefully, you are not supporting a man. You are supporting the purposes of God that the man is given to steward. We are not teaching idolatry to a man. Our preoccupation is the will of God must be done. The purposes of God must be fulfilled. But those purposes are managed by men in certain ranks, in certain structures, in certain orders. And if you don't understand the purpose attached to the man to steward, you will find yourself not giving strong support to what you should be giving. And in fact, you might be fighting what God is authorizing. That's a bad place to be in. Okay, so the men are convinced, according to the word of the Lord, well did the Lord God prophesy about you, David, that you will shepherd his people, Israel. Now, being armed by what God said and the grace in you, when we first came to you, watch, when we first came to you, we were in desection. We were in depression. We were in debt. We were distressed. But having been associated in love and loyalty to your grace, and it's at least for 10 years or more, some say 13, that David was a fugitive running away from Saul. And in that time period, there's a transformation because of the grace of God present within them. How many know grace can change your circumstances? If you connect to the right person, not waiting for that person first to be famous, then you connect. David wasn't king when these guys connected. They connected to him while he was a fugitive, running away from Saul, but they had the discernment to recognize we need to connect not to external standards of success. 
Hey, some, one, one guy said to me when we started our church, I said to him, you're coming. I invited him to meetings. No, no. He said, call me in a few years when you're established and you are, then maybe I'll come. I said, no, no problem. <laughs> you know, you're still starting out. You're small. You're unknown. You're just busy. And he doesn't want to come to that which is unknown. But sometimes if you look at something unknown from the natural eyes, you could be negating and forfeiting something that God has ordered for you to be of benefit to you, but you're using the wrong yardsticks to determine to what you connect to. Huh? I don't know about you, but it's a big problem in Durban. Huh? You don't connect to a father because he's famous. In fact, God hasn't called us to be famous. Hmm? Don't connect to someone because of wealth, because of fame, because of whatever. You connect to someone because of your discernment of the grace of God in the person. Right? And these men are, are thoroughly convinced. We see purpose in you. And even in moments in the season of your life when it seemed like you were unable to accomplish that purpose because you were a runaway fugitive, yet we connected at that critical point and there was transformation and we become David's mighty men. Okay? And they helped him in the war. First Chronicles 12, 1 tells you this. Everyone say they helped him. So they are helping David. What they are saying to David is, thank you for the grace impartation. Thank you for the transformation over the years. Now, everyone say now. Now, now we're moving beyond the romantic phase. Now let's accomplish the purpose. We are transformed. We are strong now. Now we're going to push purpose. And I believe for Cape Town, the next thrust is purpose. The purposes of the Lord now are going to run Swiftly, and these men, the Bible says in First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1, these are the men, these are the ones, <coughs> excuse me, who came to David at Ziglag while he was still restricted because of Saul. It's referencing something history, historical that happened years ago. These are the same ones that were with him. Now they are mighty men. It says, and they were among the war. The? Come on, everyone say mighty men. Mighty men. Everyone do like, do like this with your arms, say mighty men. Right? You're not just men. We want mighty men, right? These guys were a different ilk. These were a different caliber. These were differently minded. These are not men. These are mighty men. Right? What Cape Town needs is not just men, but mighty men to stand up and to be accounted and to push purpose like never before. Amen? Now, please receive the grace as I'm speaking. I'm sensing something. Don't just hear information. There's a might coming to men. Right? There's an authority coming to men in this city. It's not just men. It's mighty men that can stand their grounds, put themselves like men, be men of courage, be men of conviction, and once you discern purpose, you do everything in your power to support it. Even if it's vested in men, but it's not the man you're supporting, it's the purposes of God. That man is given to steward. That is your preoccupation. At the end of the day, when I sleep, or one day when I die, which will be in about 80 years' time, <laughs> I said to the Lord, I want to live to at least 130. I'm 50 now. I just look this young. <laughs> I said, Lord, the last 50 years have been great. I said, the next 50 years, I'm going to push purpose like I've never done before. I want my life to count. Before I hit that grave, it must, the boys are here, remember this, on my epitaph, 
Don't say wonderful father. Just say, here lies someone who fulfilled purpose. So long as when we die, God's will is done, then our lives were purposeful, meaningful. What is the purpose of living life and doing nothing? Just existing, not, not, not aiding the purposes of God for, for, for the global church. I want to, it must be in God's registry, said of me, he contributed significantly to my purpose. That's the greatest commendation anybody can get. He aided, he pushed my purpose. It's vested within a relationship. You discern the purpose, you support the man stewarding the purposes. At the end of the day, the will of the Lord is done. Okay? Everyone say they helped him in the war. That's what the Bible says. They came to David. They said, we're going to secure your position. Every enemy around you, we're taking out so you can be strong. You know the word surround here is azar. Everyone say azar. Say it like azar. Right? It's help. They helped him. You know what this word in the Hebrew means? It means this, to surround him, to protect, to support. It also means to give material and non-material help to somebody. This is what the 30 did to David. They became David's personal bodyguards. They said, no one is touching you. To get to you, they must first come to us. And I'll tell you what these guys were like in a moment. You don't want to meet these guys in war. You'll be history before you even think about it. These guys were bad in a good way. <laughs> these guys were sharp in war. You don't want to temper with these guys. Well, you, before you know it, you'll be, your head will be off. Right? Now, look at, quickly because of time, look at First Chronicles 12 verse 17. Watch. First Chronicles 12 verse 17 says the following. When they came to David, this is how David meets one of them who becomes one of the heads. There's a, there's, there's, even in the 30, there was a ranking. There was three above, there was a head of the three, and there were heads. And it says some were heads but did not attain to the first three. So there was rank even in them. One of the heads, not the first three, but one of the heads was a guy called Amasai. Everyone say Amasai. Amasai. Sounds like a powerful name, right? Right, Amasai. David, David went to meet them. And David says, now they come into pledge loyalty. David says, if you come peacefully to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if you come to betray me to my adversaries, since there's no wrong in my hand, may the God of our fathers look upon it and decide. God is, David saying, no issues here guys, no issues. If you come to support me, well, may God be happy. But if you come with ulterior motive in your heart, I don't even judge you. I leave you to God. Hand you over to God. Let God deal with you. Tell you never keep your own hands clean. Just deliver people over to God to deal with. <laughs> it's a much safer option, right? So then the Bible says in the next verse 18, the Spirit came upon Amasai, one of the leaders there. The Spirit came upon Amasai, who was chief of the 30. And he said, notice what he says to David, we are yours, O David, we are with you, O son of, what was, was Timothy with Paul, yes, serving Paul, but with him. They say something similar to David here. They say we are yours and we are with you. You are never with someone until you are theirs. In the order of things is we are yours first. We are given over to you. 
like the Macedonians gave themselves over to Paul. Remember? He said they gave themselves to us. A lot of people have no problems giving yourself to the Lord. But as you are given to the Lord, you must also be given to the representations of the Lord in your midst. Give your heart. Give your life. Give your loyalty. Give your skill sets. Give your time. Give your passions to the man that God put as your apostolic father in grace. Say, we are yours. We are with you. Right? And he says this, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you. Not one peace, two peace. Double peace. Shalom, shalom. We are here to ensure your double peace, David. That's what he's saying. We're here to bring you into peace and rest. Because so long as you in peace, not in pieces, so long as you are in peace, you are in the right frame of mind to administrate purpose. But so when you are in anxiety, turmoil, in unrest, purpose is potentially negated. So they want to ensure the peace, the well-being of their leader. And they say, peace to you, but not just to you. He says further, peace, peace to you, and peace to him who helps you. Indeed, who is really helping you? He says, your God is with you. So he's saying, these have come to help what God is helping. You want to support what God is supporting. You don't want to act in contradiction to what God is pushing. Who wants to be God's enemy here? I certainly don't want. I want to help what I perceive God is already helping. That's what he says. He doesn't just ensure David's peace. He says, I ensure your peace, peace, peace to your David, son of Jesse, and peace to everybody else here. These hundreds of men that are with you, that have come to help you, peace to them also. That's why they're not just men, they're mighty men. They don't just ensure David's peace. They ensure the peace of all of their brothers that are with David. One of the best ways to support your father is helping your brother, who is the other son of your father. So you say, peace, peace to your father, but peace to everybody here that is with the father. This church has a significant purpose. You can ensure, I'm just using Gordon as an example, but you can apply this to all, to all your local congregations. Gordon's peace is essential to be preserved so he can administrate purpose. 30 mighty men come around him and say, peace, peace to you. We're here to help you, surround, protect you, grant you strong support in a material fashion and non-material fashion. We're here to azar. Everyone say azar. We're here to help. But it's not just you we focused on lest we be classified as the new idolatry in Cape Town. We also focus simultaneously on everybody else that's got the same conviction to support the purpose of God in you. When you ensure the welfare of your brother, you ensure the peace of your father, who is equally concerned about all his sons. Okay? It's vital. Everyone say strong support. That's how you give strong support. Okay, now it is interesting, look in First Chronicles, because of time, I'm just going to jump, uh, uh, jump a few uh, verses. In First Chronicles 11 and verse 10, <clears throat> gee, time really goes faster in Cape Town than in Durban. <laughs> hey, it's colder here too. I think we should go brrrr all the time. 
In 1 Chronicles 11 and verse 10, these are the heads of the mighty men whom David had. Everyone said they gave him strong support. Now, the same verse in the King James, the King James version of the Bible, says it slightly differently. These are the heads of the mighty men whom David had. What does it say? Who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. Now, listen carefully. The principle is when you provide strong support to your leader, you are indirectly strengthening yourself. In strengthening your leader, the, the mindset of these 30 is, so long as he is strong, we are strong. If we can ensure his strength, we are fine. But if he's compromised, we're in trouble. Because these guys recognize that the grace of God flows from God through David to them. So he has purpose to steward as king in the nations of the earth. I'm, I call this the big secret. Tell your neighbor the big secret. You know, I, I wrote a manual on grace, and there are at least 12 biblical ways to access greater grace. I find the most powerful way is to give active, physical, and spiritual support to one's apostolic fatherly oversight. And to support purpose, because once you support purpose, you begin to harness a grace that becomes operative in you as you support his purpose, even the unique assignments that God has for you. Relative to your personal things, you do those private things with added grace because of the thing that you supported. It comes to, it comes to be brought to bear upon your personal life in a very, very profound way. So I was recently in Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, about two, weeks, two, or three, two or three weeks ago. We were in a compound and we were teaching a whole school to mainly rural pastors. One of the young men came to me and he said, Pastor Barnwell, how do you know all the things you know? A young man, right? Uh, he said, can you please recommend to me a Bible school that I must go to because I want to I wanna be like you. Which Bible school did you go to? So I said to him, I haven't set a foot in a Bible school. I haven't been to any learning institution. To this day, I'm being honest. No courses in theology to my name. I said, I don't have a theological degree of any kind, but I have a father. And that has been the medium of the flow of revelation and grace to me that equips me to do the purposes of God more than a piece of paper hanging on my wall. Academically, I'm not, I'm not against that. All I'm saying is there is a main way, there is a primary way of accessing grace. And 99.9% .9 that I know, I learned from my father. It's as simple as that. And the grace comes attendant with that as I fulfill his purpose, which is reach, resource, reform. I keep that in my mind, that mandate, that mission of my father in Christ. And then what I'm discovering now, when I do that, I become enriched in my own life and empowered with the grace of God. And that grace finds its expression even in the unique assignments that God has for me personally. They're all linked to his purpose, Yes. But I'm finding an efficiency. I'm finding an empowerment. There's the long way and there's the short way. You choose, brethren. That's all I'm saying. I can talk to you from a theological platform. I can talk to you from my life personally. This thing works.
Tell someone it works. In closing, oh, we, there's no time, okay? Let me just list to you what these 30 mighty men did. In 2 Chronicles 23, okay, your second aspect of your homework, apart from Galatians 2, is to read 2 Samuel 23. Right? In fact, I think you should all make a, th- a study of David's mighty men. They were the baddest dudes on the planet. Do you know these guys were so bad? Some of the Gadites who form part of this group, the Bible says they had faces like lions. Who would like to meet a warrior in war with a face like a lion? And not that, that speaks of brute strength and courage. Not just that, simultaneously it says their feet were like the feet of gazelles on mountaintops. Yeah, you got brute strength and agility in one man and you're facing him in war. And they're ambidextrous. You don't know which hand's going to kill you. <laughs> it's like... And you, I always wonder, why were these guys so skillful? Guess why? They were connected to David, a man of war. Joshebed Bashabeth was one of the men. He killed 800 men with one spear. How bad a dude is this guy? Huh? Eleazar stayed on the battlefield and he killed a whole troop of Philistines. At the end of the battle, they couldn't divorce the sword from his hand. The Bible says his hand clung to his sword. They couldn't separate it. The sword speaks of the word of God. He was so one with the word received from David that that gave him authority to finish the enemies of God. You see, he's not, he was defending a field. He wasn't just defending a field. He was defending the purpose of God vested in David in the land. And when he functions serving purpose, grace comes upon him to make him successful in what God has called him to do. Abishai was the leader of the, of the mighty men. He killed 300 men with one spear. Beniah was known for going into a, on, into a pit on a snowy day to kill a lion. He didn't fall in. He went deliberately. There's not an accident. No one goes into a pit where there's a lion to kill the lion. Nobody does that in their right mind. And it's, it's in the middle of winter. The Bible says on a cold, snowy day, this guy goes and he sorts the lion out. Right? This guy's bad. He also served as the leader of the personal bodyguard of David. David was surrounded by such caliber of men. The same guy, Benaiah, killed an Egyptian giant that made Goliath look like a child. Right? These were bad dudes. Shama, another guy on the 30 you read in the account there, he single-handedly defended a plot of lentils from Philistines that wanted to occupy it. No one's taking the inheritance of my king. And he defends. My point is, whatever David did, these guys, their exploits, far exceeded David. Right? David kills a lion and a bear. One guy's taking a lion in a pit on a cold day. Right? David kills Goliath. Banana kills an Egyptian giant that makes Goliath look like a child. David only can use one hand. They come with two. Right? You know which hand's going to kill you. Right? Every grace configuration in David is multiplied in his men. But they don't use their success as a reason to disconnect from David. 
They say, no, we realize we are as this efficient because of our connection to you. And I'm saying if you find a father, apostolically, that you connect to, like Timothy to Paul, like the, like the mighty men to, to David, like Moses in his time doing great work, serving the purposes of God, promised to Abraham. The moment any son connects his activities to purpose vested in a father, God dispatches unusual grace to that son to be successful in his time. Because that son has successfully died unto himself to serve the purposes higher than himself, vested within another. And I want to encourage you that this revelation grows within you. And that the church in Cape Town comes to a new place of heightened efficiency in the execution of the purposes of God. I submit to you, you will do mighty things in Christ. Amen? You watch the movie, The 300? <laughs> Those guys were bad. 300 men defending the whole Persian Empire against 300. So they train, they're wired for war, they're mighty men, they intent on purpose. I'm telling you, when you grip by purpose, any obstacle is surmountable. And God will give grace for that because you are intent on fulfilling a purpose that is higher than yourself. At the end of the day, it must be said that the purposes that were done in you because you are accurately positioned in active, strong support to legitimate apostolic fatherly grace, whose grace has been revealed to you by revelation, not through any other yardstick of success, but the grace to accomplish purpose was revealed to you. And you become powerfully proficient and efficient in your own calling in time in what God has called you to do because what you do bears relevance to what God promised somebody else before. This is what Jesus meant in John 4 when he says, you can enter into the labors of others who have gone before you, and you can reap where you have not sown. He said that in John 4. Right? There's an easy way and there's a hard way. Choice is yours. Stand with me as we pray. Amen. Do you receive the word of the Lord this morning? Come on, do you receive the word of the Lord? Amen. Lift up your hands before the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this word. We are encouraged as we read these accounts in your word that is eternal, that is enduring, that will never pass away. And now I, we come to you as a group. We come to you as sons. Whether we're male or female, we are sons and we want to be mighty in the earth. I pray, come on, lift your hands. I pray the spirit of might would rest upon your church. It's one of the sevenfold spirits of Christ, of the Holy Ghost, the seven eyes of the Lord. It's one of them. This is, it's a spirit of might and conquest to do things and to, to, to cover ground in the spirit in a military way, in a courageous way, without fear, without uh, hesitation, uh, without reticence. We want to move forward boldly into the purposes of the Lord. So God, we look to you at this time. And I ask by revelation, O oh God, speak to, you, speak to us and position us accurately in parts 
of structural father-son relationships that are accurate, that are ordained by you. Open our eyes to see those valid, authentic, apostolic fathering graces that we should give strong support to. For as we do, we strengthen ourselves also in you and your purposes thrive for your church globally. On your behalf, Father, I bless your people. I pray great grace and peace be upon the church here in Cape Town. Great grace, peace, blessing, understanding, revelation concerning the purposes of the Lord. Be your portion in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as you fulfill the purposes of God attendant with you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Thank you once again for having me. Thank you, Gordon, for this time. I mean, I deeply appreciate it. Okay, Grace.